We are looking at the third commandment, and that is we are not to take the name of the Lord in vain. So it's the second book of your Bible, Exodus chapter 20. Once you have it, if you're able to stand with us, would you stand for the reading of one verse? Don't get too excited. We're still going to preach the same amount of time. (laughs) Exodus 27. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Father, your name is holy. You've revealed yourself in holiness. Mount Sinai was filled with fire, lightning, thunder, smoke, as you came down to make a covenant with the people of Israel. And there the king condescended and spoke the commandments before they were ever written. And one of them was, I want you to honor my name. I want you not to take it in vain, but to give it all the honor and sacredness and weight that it deserves. And Father, when we just think about that thought, we can't help but think of our culture right now and, and maybe even you know the church culture and the, the flippant kind of light manner that we use your name, Lord. Forgive us. Forgive us for the number of times in a given hour or day where your name is used in a way that does not honor you. And it amazes me how patient you are, Lord, because in a given day, we can't imagine how many times your name is taken in vain, and yet it shows that you are patient. You don't want anybody to perish. You want all to come to repentance. And we're so grateful for your patience in our lives because for many of us, Lord, our our mouth was one of the last things that kind of came into line with who we are. And we all would have to admit that we still struggle in these areas. And so we want to not only have our lives, but our speech sanctified. And, you know, the book of James says, no one can tame the tongue, but you can tame it by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we just pray that you would be honored today with the way that we deal with this third commandment. We'd remember that we're in a new covenant and we have the grace of God in our lives. But yet we know that your, your law doesn't change, Lord. You're the same and you want to be honored and May you be honored in what we do and how we respond to this text today. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a seat. The third commandment, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This will lead us to the Lord's table in communion, so I pray that you'll be preparing your heart for that. God has come down on Mount Sinai in power and majesty and glory and sounds and light and smoke. And the people are warned not to even touch the mountain lest they die. God is holy. And God comes down in marriage covenant kind of imagery, but also in something I want to put before you today, and that is in the king and kingdom imagery. For on Sinai, the king comes down. And when we become Christians, this is something that I'm not sure gets enough attention in the evangelical world But let me just tell you that yesterday, about 50 guys gathered here in this sanctuary for our men's breakfast, and one of our deacons, Bill White, shared something on his heart, and he was talking about the difference between being a cultural Christian and being a disciple. And he was bringing out some of these ideas where Jesus said, I want you to follow me, and how people in the New Testament would make excuses. And I got a chance to come up and talk to the guys at the end, and I said, you know, something we need to think about is that when we say we're going to follow Jesus, when we use the word Jesus is Lord, 
A synonym for that word is Jesus is king. You are, when you ask Jesus to become your Lord, you are asking him to be the king of your life, and you are now serving a new king and a new kingdom. Prior to becoming a Christian, we serve the prince of this world. We march to the beat of that drummer. We had the world's system, the world's values. But now that you've become a Christian, Jesus wants you to know that you've made him your king if you're a Christian, and you are trying to build his kingdom. This is what it means to follow the Lord. It's not just a prayer to get fire insurance. It's not a sinner's prayer at a camp when you were you know, 10 or 12 or 15 years old, and that's it. No, it is a whole change of life. It is a whole new allegiance to the king and the kingdom. And I fear for the evangelical world where we're making, you know, it's so much about easy believism that we don't call people to deep discipleship. And Jesus didn't mess around with these kinds of things. You guys know when he had conversations with people, he would challenge people to follow him and essentially give up everything to follow that which is going to last, that which is eternal. And as God comes down on Mount Sinai, he says, one of the things I want you to know is who I am. My name reflects who I am. Now, in our Western culture, we may not give the same weight to giving a name to someone as the Hebrew culture would give. They would typically name a Hebrew male on the eighth day, on the day of circumcision. That's the day that Jesus received his name. And Jesus, or Yeshua in Hebrew, means Yahweh is salvation. So Jesus was named very specifically to his mission. And when you read and study the Bible, you can see how names had great significance. And we don't always know how people came up with the name, but there was prayer and they waited a little bit and kind of tried to sense the trajectory of someone's life. And then they would give a name in keeping with that trajectory. Now, Shane just mentioned that we have a, I have a new granddaughter. My wife and I have a new granddaughter. We have a new blessing in our family. And her name is Melody Noel. Uh, what's her last name again? <laughs> That's, a, that's kind of a joke. Anyway, her name is Melody Noel. And think about it. Melody, what does her dad do? Well, you know, so we're already, I'm singing off key to her. Shane sings on key to her. But, and it's, it's a beautiful name, right? So a lot of thought is given to names. And when we have a child on the way, maybe you were, uh, you know, debating with your spouse. Maybe everybody was interjecting what the name should be. Maybe you had that book, you know, of all those names, however many names there are. What should we do? What should we name this child, right? But in the end, the name of God is connected directly to his identity. Now, on this same mountain, before Moses went off to be the deliverer by God's mighty hand, he had that encounter at the burning bush. And Moses asked the Lord a question. He said, Lord, when I go and I tell the people about this deliverance and they ask me, what is your name? What should I tell them? And that's where God famously said, I am that I am. And then he used the, the, what we call the tetragrammaton, the four letters that are literally Y-H-W-H. He used I am in verse 14 and then Yahweh in verse 15. And as much as you can study these two declarations by God, basically what scholars have concluded is that I am and Yahweh essentially point in the same direction. I am means I am the self-existing one. 
Not I was, not I will be, but I am. Everything comes from me. I'm the creator. I'm the sustainer. I am non-contingent. I depend on no one else. I simply am who I am. And that's one of the things that Moses was told. And then the name Yahweh or Yahweh. We don't have the vowels because the Jews stopped writing the vowels because they were concerned that they might break this commandment. So in the Old Testament manuscripts, every time Yahweh is there, it's simply Y-H-W-H. And our best conclusion is that it's Yahweh or Yahweh. But the name means the self-existent one. It speaks of self-existence, completeness, authority, fullness. The word honor comes to mind because God's name is to be honored. And the word honor in Hebrew is kavod. And it means to give weight to the name. So think about it. Don't take the name in vain as to bring lightness to the name. Like there's nothing in it. It's empty. That's what vanity is. Idols are called empty. They have ears, but they can't hear. Eyes, but they can't see. A mouth, but they can't talk. Feet, but they can't walk. They can't do anything. They can't deliver you. They're empty. They're futile. They are vain. God says, I'm just the opposite of that. I am full. I give life. There is weight to my name. There is sacredness to my name. Do not devalue my name. Give it the proper weight and honor it deserves. He's the opposite of vanity. He is fullness, life, weight. Do you see what he's saying here? So there's going to be a positive way to take the name, to invoke the name. But the Jews stopped writing the name and even speaking the name for fear of breaking this commandment. And they started calling God simply the name. That is Hashem. And the name, interestingly enough, in the Hebrew word picture, as Moses would have written it, it's two words or two letters. It's the sheen and the mem. The sheen looked like teeth in the ancient picture language, and the mem looks like our M, and it speaks of motion or chaos. And here's what the name means. This is so cool. The name means that God swallows up chaos in our lives. Isn't that cool? That's what Hashem means. The Lord destroys our chaos. And when we call upon the name that is above every name, what happens? The chaos in our lives all of a sudden gets swallowed up by the peace of Christ. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Lord of Lords. And his name is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. And so God comes down on Sinai. First, he tells Moses, okay, you want to know what my name is? Here's my name. And then he tells the people, now, I want you to honor my name. And this is one of the top 10 commandments. So it must be important. And of course, you know, Jesus, I, I pointed out to you last Sunday, he was asked about the greatest law in the Torah or in the top 10. And Jesus turned all the shall nots, you shall not, you shall not, into two you shalls. And he, here's what he said. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and some versions say, and with all your strength. Jesus said, I want you to love me or love God with everything that you are. And so Jesus had many encounters with religious leaders, and he said these words. He says, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. I want you to love me with all your heart. I'm reading from Matthew 12, 34, now into 35. He says, the good man out of his good treasure 
brings forth what is good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word that a man shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Matthew 12, 34 through 37. And all God's people said, gulp? You mean every careless word that a man or woman speaks, you'll give an account for on the day of judgment? That's what Jesus just said. But I got some really good news for you. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, the commandments and requirements were nailed to his cross. And I'm forgiven of every silly, stupid thing I've ever said, thought, you know, said in a moment of anger, said before I became a Christian, Aren't you glad that you're forgiven and that that was nailed to the cross? That's the beauty of the new covenant, amen? Right there deserves a hallelujah and amen, maybe even a clap to the Lord, right? I have enjoyed the Indiana Jones uh, movies over the years, and the third movie is The Search for the Holy Grail, and it's all just kind of a legend thing. But at some point in that movie, as Indy is with his father, uh, he says, he, go, he takes the name of the Lord in vain. He says, something happens, it's a tense moment, and he says, Jesus, and his dad slaps his face. And he says, that's for blasphemy. And I want you to think about, that, that may be a little shocking in our culture, but the idea to blaspheme the name of God is to treat the name as trivial, it's to, to put no importance to the name. And I want you just to pause for a second and think about our culture. Maybe think about some of your friends at work, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe in your group. Uh, I played a lot of years of competitive racquetball, and I was known as Kid Mike the Preacher Boy. I was named this by a former boxer who was a great guy, and he became a friend of mine. And uh, we would, you know, they would call me kind of the nice pastor outside the court. But when I, when I got into the court, Sometimes I would be announced as, now in the ring, Kid Mike, the preacher boy. <sighs> anyway, anyway, so I'd come in, and it was kind of a running joke. And so something would happen during the racquetball game, and often there was non-Christians in there, and they would take the name of the Lord in vain, or they would curse, and they would always turn to me and look at me and apologize. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. So I'd kind of play it up a little bit. Come over here. You may kiss my ring. I will bring you absolution. Let me get some holy water. Throw it on them. It burns. It burns. You know, all of that kind of stuff. Anyway, here's the point. They were trying to watch their P's and Q's with a pastor in the court. But the truth of the matter is that every day... So many times a day, the name of Jesus, the name of God is used as an exclamation point or it is, his name is brought down to the level of a four-letter curse word to express disgust. That's what happens every day in a culture where the God who made everybody says, don't you take my name in vain. Imagine, just, just pause and think of the heaviness of that, And think about how the Lord says people are going to give an account for this. Now, if they come to Jesus Christ, of course, that is dealt with in full, praise God. But it is a heavy matter. It's not something to be taken in a trivial way. God's name is holy. A pastor said he was flying on a plane and he was coming back from a conference and there were two businessmen behind him and they were cursing up a storm and 
going back and forth, and they were using hell and God's name in vain and everything you can imagine. And finally, he said he got sick of it, and he peeked over the seat, and he said, hey, are you two guys in the ministry? And they said, what are you talking about in the ministry? He said, well, I'm in the ministry, and I heard you guys use God, Jesus, damn, and hell uh, all in the last couple of minutes. I can barely get that in in one message from the Bible, so I, f- I figured maybe you guys are in the ministry. He said, after that, it was quiet for the rest of the flight. (laughs) Because even grown men and women, when confronted, have a sense of the law of God. Because Romans 2 says the law of God is written on every heart, and our conscience bears witness. And so we know, even if we're an unbeliever, we know that there's something wrong with taking the holy name of God down to that level. But we can get so callous to it, we can be around it so much that all of a sudden it just flows from our lips. And more, you know, we might think that this is less weighty, but even the idea of, oh my God, or sometimes we, we try to switch that to, oh my gosh, And I know what we're trying to do, but still we're using God's name without much of a thought. It's almost like, you know, it's a response to a situation or a moment, but it's not invoking the name of God for the right reasons. And so in Psalm 8, verse 1, David said, O Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've displayed your splendor above the heavens. In Psalm 29, verse 2, David said, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. If you were to break down these first three commandments, they're about having the right God, worshiping him in the right way, and honoring his name. Jesus put it this way, the Father is seeking worshipers to worship him, the verse is right up there on the wall, in spirit and in truth. Now some versions capitalize the S and they might say that that's the Holy Spirit, but a bulk of the scholars say spirit there lowercase s is your spirit. And what God wants is he, uh, back to your heart now. He wants you to worship him from the innermost part of your being and he wants to be worshiped in truth. No idols, no falseness about it. He wants it to be pure worship. And so the last book of the Old Testament we're studying on Wednesday night, God says, unless Israel repents, I'm gonna smite the land with a curse and he's gonna send John the Baptist and then eventually Elijah in the last days. And there were people who were still feared God's name despite the culture. And God said these words, Malachi 4.2, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And you will tread down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, Malachi 4.4, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I command, commanded him in Horeb or on Sinai for all Israel. In other words, God's saying, all you got to do is go back to the law and you'll know what my values are. You'll know what's really important. When Ezekiel got a, uh, he got to cut the hole in the wall and got to see all the abominations Israel was doing in the temple, God said, I'm going to judge the people And the Lord said to these avengers or these potentially angels, go through the midst of the city, Ezekiel 9, 4, even through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations which are being committed 
in its midst. Before judgment comes, God marks people who sigh and groan over their own culture. And that's what I find myself doing today, is I find myself doing a lot of sighing and a lot of groaning. Because I look at what's happening today and how the culture has so shifted away from biblical values, uh, away from the king and his kingdom, and even within the church culture. And I find myself doing a lot of sighing and groaning. And there's a lot of vanity and a lot of the Lord's name taken in vain. Now, away from the negative to the positive. So what does this name mean and how does it reveal God's identity? I want to show you just a couple of snapshots. First of all, in Exodus 33, you know, Moses' deep desire, Exodus 33, a few pages to your right, was to know God. And he wanted to see God's glory. And he prayed, Lord, show me your glory, Exodus 33:19. 19. We're going to get a little bit more revelation about God's name, God's person. And God said, I myself, 33:19, will make all my goodness, God is good, pass before you. And will proclaim the name of the Lord. There's both Hashem and Yahweh right there. Whenever you see Lord in that capital L and then the small caps there, that's always Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Now, what God promised actually occurred in Exodus 34, so just down the page a little bit. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud. He stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, so just what he said he would do, the Lord, the Lord God, what is he? He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps his loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And so this is what the command says. Anyone who takes the name of the Lord in vain, they're going to get punished. And the punishment is not laid out here, but in the book of Leviticus, someone actually does this and they get killed for it. And Ananias and Sapphira might be a New Testament picture of a group of people who take the name of the Lord in vain. It's not all laid out there, but they lie about what they give. They essentially lie to God or about God, and they're taken out on the spot. So obviously God is not playing games with the honor of his name. Yet within his name, we see how gracious and compassionate he is. Turn over to the book of Numbers, just a little bit to your right. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 6. What is the way that we should call upon the name and should we name his name given what we've just learned? Well, notice in the ironic blessing, uh, Numbers 6.22, the Lord speaks to Moses and he says, speak to Aaron. Aaron's gonna be or is the high priest and to his sons, they'll, they'll have that priestly ministry and say, thus you shall bless the sons of Israel and you shall say to them, this is what you speak. Notice, the Lord... Yahweh bless you and keep you. The Lord, Yahweh, make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord, Yahweh, the third time, lift up his countenance on you and give you shalom, give you peace. And then, so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel. And then, what will I do? I will bless them. 
There is a way to invoke this name. And even though there was a fear about breaking the, the third commandment, you can see right here, God said, I want you to call upon my name. I just want you to call upon my name in the right way. So let's take it to, to us. So you, you all that are Christians in this room, you called upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord graciously saved you. You called upon the name of Jesus. I've been hearing stories about Muslims in the Middle East who didn't know anything about God or the Bible. And all of a sudden, the Lord Jesus reveals himself to them or they have a dream about him. And they might call upon God and say, please show me who you are. And Jesus responds in dreams and visions. This is actually firsthand testimony coming from the Muslim world right now. It's quite amazing. God is gracious. He wants to be known. He wants you to know him and he wants you to call upon his name. So in the book of Acts, you know, Peter and John are going to the place of prayer and there's a lame man sitting at the beautiful gate and he's asking for alms as he would normally do. And Peter looks at him and says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the man got up and he began walking around. Can you imagine? He was over 40 years old. It was a radical miracle. I'm sure he was just dancing in front of him. Woo! No denying a miracle happened. But the religious leadership was very unhappy. By what authority do you do these things? And so they brought him into the Hall of the Hewn Stone. This is the ancient Supreme Court building in Israel. The 70 Sanhedrin gather plus the high priest. And they say, by what name, by what authority have you done these things? Peter says, you want to know? It is by the name of Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, he's in the Supreme Court of his day. These guys could kill him. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. It's by that name that this man stands before you whole. And he's inside the courtroom too. Going, oh, yeah. Can't deny the miracle. There he is. And it is by this name that he, is, he stands before you whole. This is the stone which you builders rejected but has become the chief cornerstone. And listen, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now they weren't happy about it. And they threatened them, don't speak anymore in this name. And they said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, we'll let you judge that one. But we will not stop speaking the things that we have seen and the things that we have heard. So the Apostle Paul, Saul, becomes converted and he's ministering in Ephesus and miracles are happening by Paul's hand. Uh, handkerchiefs connected to him and people who are demon-possessed are being delivered and I'm sure people were watching him and there were these seven sons of Sceva and they thought, we'll try this. We've got a deliverance ministry. We're, we're gonna try it. So we're gonna preach the name of Jesus. So they come across this demon-possessed guy and they say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, uh, come out. And the demon says, well, Paul I know, Jesus I know, but who are you? And the Bible says that the demon-possessed man gave them such a beating, these seven sons of Sceva, that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. <laughs> what went wrong? They used the name of Jesus. Because here's the thing. When you use the name of Jesus, here's what's happening, brethren. Let's take it to our new covenant setting. Jesus wants us to use his name. 
We can give a cup of cold water in his name. We can welcome a child in his name. We can be benevolent in his name. We can pray in his name. But when we pray in Jesus' name, please listen to what I'm about to say. It's so important. We are saying that we are his ambassador. We are exercising his authority, if you will, on the earth. And we are representing the king and the kingdom and his values. Just because you tag the name of Jesus onto a prayer, if your prayer is about you and your kingdom, if your prayer is about spending it on your own lust, you ain't going to get nothing from the Lord. Nothing. You can tag the name of Jesus onto any selfish, self-centered, your kingdom prayer, and it's not going to work. And even if you say it with authority, in the name, which seems to be popular in some circles, Greg Laurie was joking one time. He said, you know, these, these word faith teachers, faith healers, uh, they have a way of saying the name that, you know, it seems like they went to school to say it the right way. He goes, never do I think that they go into a restaurant and say, waitress, can I get a cheeseburger in the name of Jesus? Right? Here's my point. If you're going to use that name, and there seems like there's some verses that give you carte blanche, whatever you ask in my name, I will do that the Father may be glorified, that if you're going to be my ambassador and my representative, that it represents kingdom values. So let's take it on the positive end. You pray over somebody in Jesus' name. You know he's called you to pray over the sick. You know he's called you to preach the gospel. You know he's sent you to comfort the brokenhearted. And you use that name. And there's authority in that name. But don't misuse that name. Don't tag it onto something to build your kingdom and, you know, uh, etc. But use that name, call upon that name as a believer. But then it comes down to kingdom priorities and values. Amen. And what's in that name? There's an incredible Christmas prophecy. You don't have to turn there, but we just sang about it. And here's what it says. It says, Isaiah 9, 6, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called. Do you remember, brethren? Wonderful counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, Prince of Shalom. That's, his, that's who he is. He's, he's the God who abounds in loving kindness. He's the God that's good. He's the God that wants to grant life and peace, but he doesn't want to be misrepresented, and he doesn't want his name misused. So let me just fill in some blanks here. And let me just say that you know, using his name in a proper way is beautiful, wonderful, praying over people, etc., Mary put it this way, the mighty one in her Magnificat, her song, the mighty one has done great things for me, holy is his name. Isaiah 57, 15 says, thus says the highly exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Jesus said, when you pray, pray in this way, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Look, if that's your prayer, if you want his name to be hallowed in your life and behavior, you're on the right track, man. You're not going to be perfect at it, but if your desire is to honor the king and build his kingdom, the Lord's going to bless. The Lord's going to pour out blessings, but this is where we need to shift our thinking to kingdom priorities, to going around and sharing the good news of the gospel. How might we take the name of the Lord in vain? It means to attribute nothingness or even worthlessness to it, emptiness, uh, 
even the idea of uselessness. And there are several ways that this might occur. The first is by cussing. And one writer says, the commandment is general enough as to encompass making light or trivializing God's name, mocking it, using it disrespectfully, or even to express disgust. I'm not sure biblical Israel had a concept of cussing, he says, or using a collection of four-letter words. But it is not a misunderstanding of this commandment to bring to bear on the pervasive use of today of, oh my God, and even worse in every imaginable situation. Philip Reichen picks it up. He says, today many people call down divine damnation on whatever or whoever happens to be a source of frustration. Or they use the name of Jesus Christ as a kind of exclamation point. All of the bad language on television and in the movies shows how godless our culture has become, but also shows that we can never get away from God. People can't seem to swear without using God's name. Why is this? What does it tell us about the human condition? I think it proves, says Reichen, the existence of God. Like everything people say, cursing comes from the heart. When non-Christians use God's name even in vain, it shows that deep down they know there really is a God. Their rage is a direct rebellion against God's honor. You know, I have never heard in my lifetime someone in disgust say, Oh, Buddha! Maybe you have. But just think about the number of times in a given hour or day in our country where the name of Jesus and the name of our God is blasphemed. And it is a sobering thought. And it is a reminder of how patient God is and how gracious he is. So one way is cussing. The, the, the other way would be to take an oath like, say, in a court of law. I swear on the Holy Bible that I will fulfill the uh, mandates of my office. How many people have done that on the Holy Bible? They don't know what's in here, but they've sworn on the Bible. Or I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And then they lie on the stand about everything. Yeah. It's very, you know, courts are complicated because we don't know who's telling the truth. But people make their declarations. They promise to tell the truth, and then they lie from here to Sunday and back. Small boy was a witness in an important lawsuit. The prosecuting attorney cross-examined him and then delivered, he thought was a crushing blow to the boy's testimony. Your father's been telling you to testify, has he not? Yes. The lad replied. He didn't hesitate on the answer. Now, said the lawyer triumphantly, just tell us how your father told you to testify. Well, the boy said modestly, Father told me that lawyers like you would try to tangle me in my testimony, but if I would just be careful to tell the truth, I could repeat the same thing over and over and over again. And the lawyer didn't have anything to say. I have a good friend. He visited us at first service, and we were riding motorcycles. We used to ride Harleys together, and we'd go pray over people in the hospital. And we were in a town. I don't remember where we were. We went into a McDonald's, and this kid came up, and he said, I'm in a foster home situation and I've been kicked out and I rode my bike down here and I need something to eat and I need help and blah, blah, blah. And he went through this whole litany and compassionate Pastor Michael was listening. Oh yeah, I'll buy you a cheeseburger, man. It's cool. I'm sorry that's going on. And my friend who's a police officer listened patiently and then began to drill this kid on everything he said. So the, the system that you're in, I, I know the one that heads that up in this town. So 
you, do you know her name? And uh, I can call her right now if you want. And, and he began to, and everything the kid said was a lie. And passionate Pastor Michael, and, and my friend looked at me and said, don't change how you are. I appreciate your heart, but he had been trained to look for people who were lying. I still bought the kid a cheeseburger. But, but the point is this, it's just so easy for us to just to default to that. And this is the, probably one of the bigger things that, go, that goes on in the culture right now is we don't know who's telling the truth. Think about it. Think about all the modern debates going on with science and what should be the priorities of a culture. We don't know who's telling the truth. Yes. We, we can't even seem to drill down to who's the authority that we should listen to. That's why there's so much confusion in the world. Who do we go to? Where do we turn? We, we have the answers, brethren. We have a book that says it is truth. We have a God who says he is truth. We have the answers. We need a revival. We pray over our country, amen, amen. to come back to the Lord. We are not to trivialize God's name. We're not to use it to advance our own purposes. Here's an example. We want to sound orthodox or spiritual. So we say, praise the Lord. Or we, we think it'll appeal to a certain audience. So we begin to sound like we're a Christian. Do you think that that honors God when someone tries to sound like a group of people? They just simply want your votes. Watch their actions and you'll know whether or not they're the real deal. Not Words are cheap, man. The, the way you measure a confession is the way that someone lives out their values. That's why when we have these confessions of faith in the, the culture, it's like, well, that's nice, but let's see you know, if you back that up with the way that you live. So it could be an oath-taking. It could be in a false way that one presents themselves. It could be in a lot of different ways that someone misrepresents the name. And God says, I don't want you to do that. If you're going to take my name to your lips, I want you to give it the proper weight, to give it the, the honor and the sacredness that it deserves. And so it could be in cussing. It could be in oath-taking. Jesus put it this way. Look, if you got to qualify everything you say, I'm paraphrasing, with I swear to God or I swear on my mother's grave or I swear by my third dog on my uncle's side or whatever you got to do, at some point we're going to begin to question whether or not you actually tell the truth about anything. Why do you have to swear on everything? How about this? Jesus said, how about your yes is yes and your no is no? How about instead of all this oath taking, you simply just honor the, the things that you say by backing them up by what you do. Wouldn't it be refreshing to have just someone just tell the truth? You know, when uh, you get pulled over by a police officer, if this has ever happened, police officers expect you to lie. They're so used to hearing lies. And if you tell the truth, you're, you're usually going to benefit from it. Amen? Because, <laughs> true? <laughs> because, why? Because it's so refreshing. Someone just says, yeah, I did it. Yeah, I was going too fast. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'll take my lumps. And it's over. Instead of this song and dance about every excuse under the thumb and name dropping. By the way, I know someone in the department. Uh, <laughs> would you go easy on me? They're, they're not going to go easy on you. There's one final way that this occurs. And we're winding down, but I, I want you to turn to one more passage. It's in Deuteronomy 18. And it has to do with false prophecy about speaking something in God's name as though it represented God. Let me just comment on this. Deuteronomy 18, 18, while you're turning there. In the last election, 
many in the Christian church made predictions about the outcome of the election. And many of them were wrong. And I read several articles by a brother who we would consider maybe on the Pentecostal side, but he's a scholar. And he was calling upon these pastors to publicly repent because they called the election. They were very emphatic. They said they were speaking in the name of God, that they had revelation insight from God, and they were wrong. And it wasn't from God. This can also happen if someone shares something with you personally. The Lord told me to tell you. We got to be very careful with that kind of stuff. Because if someone's heard from the Lord, and look, I'm always cautiously open to anyone who wants to share something with me because I want to be like David. Who knows whether the Lord's speaking through this person? I, I, I want to keep my heart open. But we got to be careful that we make sure it's from the Lord. We're to test everything and hold fast to that which is good and true. And in some of our circles, you know, we've, we've had this, this becomes a habit. Some of you may have come from this. Someone will speak something to you. It didn't come to pass. You know it wasn't from God. And this is where we've got to be very careful. However, I will say to you on the positive side, I've had some people speak wonderful, beautiful things into my life based upon Bible verses or insights, and they were beautiful and edifying, and that was wonderful. But again, we have to be careful. Check out Deuteronomy 18.18. It says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, like Moses. I will put my words in his mouth. Uh, that would be Messiah who comes. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, but which he shall, shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And you may say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, there's Hashem and Yahweh. If the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So this is how you know whether it comes to pass. This is something to write down. This is Jeremiah 14, 14. It says, The Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who are prophesying in my name. Jeremiah 14, 14, and 15. Although it was not I who sent them, yet they keep saying there shall be no sword or famine in the land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall meet their end. Much more I could share with you, but I don't have to tell you about the number of false prophecies that have been spoken about the return of Christ. Just to use one example, people who have set dates, they have a very dismal record. Amen? People who were so confident, they had figured out the calculations of the return of Christ, even though he said no one knows the day or the hour. And they make these declarations and people have sold homes, not gotten educations, not had families, not had children, all because of a false prophecy. And God says, you better be careful that if you speak in my name, you speak in my authority. It's truly my word and not your word or not your own imagination. And so this... There's a lot that could be said about this, but this, this was common in Israel. 
People didn't want to speak the truth, so they told kings what they wanted to hear. And the true prophets would speak the truth, and the kings would essentially say, uh, don't let that guy come around anymore. I don't like what he says. Somebody tell me lies. Tell me sweet little lies. Tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what I want to hear. We can tell you what you want to hear all day, but will it do you any good? So I'll give you one final example, and we're going to come to communion. Many times I'm standing at a pulpit and I'm speaking to a group of people at a memorial service and they've lost a loved one. I could do a song and dance around the gospel and try to be nicey-nicey and I'm always trying to be gracious and compassionate, but at some point I gotta get to the truth because there's a bunch of people with their hearts still beating who have a chance to come to know Christ, amen? So my job is to be as winsome as possible, but at some point I gotta say, you're going to die too. <laughs> but there's a way that you can know, you can be saved. You can know hope. You can know life. And I begin to preach to those who are alive. I don't know often what happened to this person. And I'm not their judge anyway. But I know I can preach to those who are alive. And so sometimes I've had young preachers say, what do I do? I'm not sure if this person was a Christian and I've asked, been asked to do their ceremony. I say, you don't need to make any commentary about them at all. You don't know where they ended up. Your job is to preach the gospel. You tell the people that are sitting there how they can be saved. God will take care of the rest. Those are the people that have the chance to respond. And so Jesus spent three, three and a half years going around Israel, Galilee, and he kept extending the gospel, extending hope. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then the, the writers of the New Testament say, call upon the name of Jesus. Because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, as we have a chance to wind down this message now and to come to your table, thank you for sending Jesus. The name above all names. And thank you that Jesus, you came down and bore our sins on the tree. And Lord, as you were suffering there for every frivolous word, careless word, every time your name was used to express disgust, every time your name was taken in vain, for every wrong deed, the times that we failed to do the right thing, the times that we transgressed knowing full well exactly what we were doing, the times that we simply missed the mark because we're just human. You nailed all of that, those commandments that were against us, you nailed them to the cross. Thank you. Because if we were judged just by this one commandment, we're all dust. But thank you that you took the penalty. The Holy One was treated on the cross as though he had committed our sins. And he became the sin offering. He took, you took the wrath of God for us, Lord. We need forgiveness. We go through these commandments. It is clear we need a Savior. And Jesus, you are that Savior. Would you keep your heart and head bowed? If you're watching via live stream right now, you have a chance. If you're not sure that you're in the kingdom, if you're not sure that Jesus is your Lord and King, if you haven't made a decision to repent of your sin and trust in him, his death on the cross, his triumphant resurrection, and even the fact that he intercedes for his people today, 
Call upon him. Cry out to him, Lord Jesus, save me. Forgive me. Renew me. Be my Lord. Be my King. Be my Savior. Be my God. I ask for your forgiveness. I repent. And I ask you to save me and change me little by little into your image. If you're a prodigal, and maybe you know some of these things that have been spoken have hit your heart in a hard way, but they've been almost like a scalpel, divine surgery to bring you back to God, to bring you true healing, to let the truth set you free. Won't you come home? Come back to the king, back to the name. And if you're a saint here and you've been walking with the Lord and you just need some encouragement or you need a touch from his mighty hand, you know, he is here. He lives inside of you if you're a believer and he loves you. And he wants you to call upon him in truth, whatever your needs may be, however deep or difficult they might be, call upon him while he is near because he is near and he does minister to his people and he'll even strengthen us. Even if the thorn doesn't go away, he'll, he'll make you strong in your weakness. That's what he does. Oh, Father, we're so grateful that we could just call upon your name. We could just bow right now and know that you hear us and invite us to a throne of grace. It's so good. Let your living waters wash over your people. In Jesus' name, amen.